Listen to this podcast, or I'll gouge your eyes out. Welcome back, Horror Hounds, to Ghostman and Rivera's Horror Show Podcast. I'm Mike Ghostman Pickle. And I'm James Rivera. Today we have an interview with Mitch McLeod, the director of the indie horror film Silhouette, currently available on Amazon Prime in the U.S. But before we get to that, we have to get to... Horror Show News. All right, our first news story is the Fede Alvarez-produced Texas Channel. Chainsaw Massacre reboot gets a new director one week into production. Ready or not directors almost cast Samara Weaving in Scream 5, but the scheduling just wouldn't work out. Uh, And yet another reboot story, John Carpenter is involved in a reboot of his film The Thing. Speaking of John Carpenter, he's, uh, John Carpenter is bragging hardcore about the quality of Halloween Kills. And I'm full of reboot news today. The Exorcist is getting a reboot. That's that's the funniest one. <laughs> All right. So what's the first one? What's what's this first bit of reboot news we have? So the first one is the Fetty Alvarez produced the Texas Chainsaw Massacre reboot gets a new director one week into production, which is never a good sign. It's actually a direct sequel to Toby Hooper's original 1974 film, which of course they're doing what Halloween 2018 did. So in, in February 2020 of this year, uh, directors Andy and Ryan Tohill, who did a little movie called The Dig in 2018, signed on to the project. Uh, the studio Legendary fired them because they were not happy with the footage they shot just one week into filming. So uh, David Blue Garcia, who done his first film in 2018 called Tejano, he took over and will start from scratch. The film was written by first-time writer Chris Thomas Devlin. So uh, Fetty Alvarez is co-producing it through his company, Bad Ombre, who have a deal with Legendary. But this is what Fetty Alvarez previously said about uh, the, the Hills when they were going to direct it. He said that the Hills vision is exactly what the fans want. It's violent, exciting, and so depraved that it will stay with you forever. But obviously, it's not what Legendary wanted. So we'll see what Fetty Alvarez says now. But there's not many, not many details besides that, but... It's never it's never a good sign when a a, a project changes directors one week into production. The only thing that I'm taking away from that is it's quite possibly maybe too depraved for a studio for for the studio. They might not see it as marketable. Oh, uh, Fede Alvarez obviously is a horror fan himself, and being a horror filmmaker. I do believe when he said uh, when those comments that he made before about what this is going to be and what the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is like, I believe he believed that he probably forgot he was working with the big studio though. And they see things a lot differently. So it's not too shocking. That's too bad because if my hunch is right, the studio might've just screwed us out of a possibly actually good remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I mean, a remake, I'm sorry, sequel. It could have possibly have actually been a really good sequel. Alas, yeah. we'll never know. 
My other yeah, thing. And, and, Look at the look at the first film, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, fully independent film that was a nightmare to make. It was a nightmare to, to uh, distribute. They had a, a lot of problems with that. They didn't make hardly any money off of it. Some people lost money on it. So it, there's not going to be a bigger studio that's going to want to bank on something like that and make it depraved like that and really shake things up. You know. I mean, if I had my vote. I would have picked Bloody Billy Pawn to direct the remake of the the Texas. I mean, the sequel to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the sequel boot, whatever you yeah. want to call it. I feel like um Billy Pawn, who's a director for our for those in the audience who don't know, Circus of the Dead. We had him on the podcast about a month ago. He has a very um harsh grindhouse sensibility and aesthetic. He's a very hardcore horror fan, and he's not afraid to go places where other filmmakers will not go. I feel like his sensibilities and his filmmaking style, combined with a studio and a big budget, could have gave us a fantastic take on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre mythology. But with this franchise, I'm starting to feel like it's don't hold your breath. Uh, studios are never going to allow another true texas chainsaw massacre to get made and until they figure that out that the way that studios want to do it is not the right way we're not going to be getting a worthy a film that's worthy of it so i don't i'm not holding my breath for this yeah and, and billy pond is a texas filmmaker too just like david blue garcia mm -hmm. independent has the right sensibilities and that outlaw attitude the outlaw filmmaker attitude i think people forget that what made that movie so special was the outlaw appeal everything about the texas chainsaw massacre feels like it was made outside of the studio system there's nothing safe about it it took chances it, it's not polished it's a polished movie but not polished in the way that you typically think of hollywood productions being polished so i that might have been like yeah, in the bottle yeah, it, why are these big studios taking these movies that were were so controversial at the time and and uh, everyone involved had to take so many chances to put it out and just to be safe? Why? It doesn't make any sense. It shows that they don't really understand the appeal when they're trying to neuter the appeal. It shows that you don't even get what the appeal was in the first place. The appeal was that it was not neutered. Yeah people liked about it that's why it still stands up to this day because it feels like a genuinely depraved movie yeah and, and i up to this day honestly honestly thought in this day and age that studios would start to get start to get a little more looser and then they they, they learn from previous mistakes and not abuse these filmmakers like this and not strip these movies away from them when they're too controversial it looks like they learned their lesson by now but it seems like pe things are getting more homogenized Good luck to the director, though, because if you pull something out of your ass and impressive, more power to you, though. No hate on the director. Yeah. The project. Any filmmaker coming up, support you. Just to make that clear. Yeah, hey, at, at least they still got a, a, a young filmmaker, you know, first-time filmmaker who just barely made his first film. So, so at least they're doing that. So let, let's see. Let's see if they let him have free reign. Maybe it'll be good, but if they start interfering too much, it's never a good idea when, inter when a studio interferes too much. They just fuck up a uh, good vision. I agree. I agree. So the next news story is about Scream 5. So we talked about this on the podcast a few weeks back. We mentioned we would have liked um, 
Samara Weaving to be have a part in Scream 5 since those directors are working on it. And it looks like she almost had a part in it, but the scheduling didn't work out. Uh, Samara mm-hmm. Weaving told Collider this week, we were talking about it, but our schedules aren't going to work, which is a bummer. We talked about it a lot, but unfortunately, I couldn't do it. I'll still be in Australia working on Nine Perfect Strangers, so we couldn't make it work. Traveling is very, very difficult these days. The cast actually so far includes Jenny Ortega from You, Melissa Barrera, who's an excellent actress from the show Vida, uh, and, along with um, Courtney Cox, David Arquette, and of course, Nev Campbell. So, I mean, I would have liked to have seen Samara weaving in this in, in this universe. And in fact, they're probably going to continue with these screen movies. Let's be honest with ourselves. The last one is never actually the last one. And if I, this will, this is one of those reboots I do have a good hunch about. I do have a good hunch about it because it's filmmakers who are passionate. You got the the original cast on board. I would have liked to have seen Samara weaving in there, but I do like that they are casting two actresses of color, which we mentioned last week: Jenny Ortega and Melissa Barrera. Melissa Barrera is a very good actress too. Two Latina actresses, so it'll be interesting to see what they bring to the world of Scream. Samara weaving is in demand for a good reason. Every, everybody wants her, and she's she's the next bona fide screen queen as far as i'm concerned i'm not sure how a screen movie will be without kevin williamson but we'll see wait isn't kevin williamson involved in this one? Oh, he is yes okay okay if he's still writing it yeah okay yeah i don't know if he's writing the script like doing the whole script but he's on board as a producer and he's contributing to the story overall so he has some kind of so he has some influence on this project Okay, so he's not going to get anything that that doesn't fit the uh, the style and the spirit of the franchise. He's not going to let that through, probably. Yeah, he's much more involved with this than he was with Scream Three, the the one that he didn't write. And that brings us to the next one. John Carpenter is involved in another reboot of one of his films, The Thing. This is another thing where the studios are trying to mimic what happened with uh, Halloween 2018. You know, get the get the original filmmakers involved to give it that spirit so uh, uh this was revealed in an interview at fantasia film festival where carpenter received a lifetime achievement award the director said that bloomhouse is rebooting the thing and he would be involved but work on the project was still down the road in quotes and uh would not say if it would be a prequel sequel or remake i don't know how to feel look I, I feel like there's almost pointless to be whining and bitching about remakes and reboots because they're inevitable. They're going to happen anyway. So really, who cares about me complaining about it? Having said that, I hope that they're really taking this seriously. If we're going to have reboots, if we're going to have remakes, if this is going to be a permanent part of the horror world to recycle these things, we might as well do them right if they're going to be done. Might as well do them right. So I guess it is a good thing to have John Carpenter on board, to have him involved. But I don't know. Something about this just sounds desperate. I do think that this could be a good movie, but I just feel weird about this one only because it seems desperate. We've already had a thing prequel. I have my doubts as to how good this is going to be or how it's going to turn out. I think it's completely unnecessary, but hey, I mean, it is possible it could be a good movie, so we'll see, I guess. It's it's just comedy to me, like seeing all these studios scramble after a success like Halloween 2018, 
you can just see them in their boardroom just scrambling oh how can we how can we mimic that success how can we do that again and they start they start doing the same things which they think will will make it successful but what they don't see is is these other people broke ground to make these movies Mm-hmm. you they they don't want none of these studios want to break ground they they want to they want somebody else to break ground and then copy whatever they do trying to copy that success just do something original <laughs> i think if john carpenter is involved it's not going to be a clunker either way so that's true that's true in yeah. other <laughs> john carpenter news um he's been bragging about halloween kills Recently, he talked about, um, we talked about on the podcast, he said it was intense. It was going to be unbelievable. He's now calling it the quintessential slasher. It stuns me how incredible it is. David just did a great job. I can't wait to have you see it. The quintessential slasher. That is a mighty claim right there. So I hope he's not overhyping us on this one. John Carpenter did not want to mince his words either, so I trust him. So John Carpenter has successfully tickled my ass with a feather. The last and silliest bit of news is The Exorcist is getting a reboot. Now, if there's any movie that doesn't need a reboot, it's The Exorcist. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it's a flawless horror film, and it still holds up to this day. It's still just as effective as it was the first time I watched it. So this is being... Uh, so Morgan Creek Entertainment is reported to be working on a reboot of the original Exorcist, as well as a TV series version of David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers. So uh, Morgan Creek is the same company that produced The Exorcist 3, Exorcist The Beginning, and Dominion, prequel to The Exorcist. Uh, of course, the sequel, uh, sequel series came to TV in 2016, but it was canceled after the second season. In my opinion, the first season was phenomenal. The second season just took a shit, so that there's no surprise that that was canceled. But then uh, there was a tweet found from Morgan Creek from back in 2015 where they said, for the record, we will never attempt to remake The Exorcist. New Exorcist film is supposed to be released in 2021. <laughs> Wait, when did they release that, that tweet? 2015. 2015? <laughs> for the record, we will never attempt to remake The Exorcist. And here we are. <laughs> oh my gosh. Out of all of them, to me, that's the worst one because it seems like it's the least rebootable. And I don't see the point of even doing an Exorcist remake. Like, why? What purpose does it serve? It doesn't really need to be updated because it hasn't really aged no. since the 1970s. It's actually more effective and more realistic looking than most supernatural or demon possession horror movies that come out. And let's face it, every possession movie, including the sequels of The Exorcist, have been nothing but pale imitations of The Exorcist. Even the second best mo- uh, uh, possession movie is a distant, distant second. And as far as I'm concerned, the only one that was ever actually good was The Exorcist 3. And one of the reasons The Exorcist 3 was very good is that it attempted to do something completely different from the original Exorcist. Every other sequel or spinoff or Exorcist movie has been more or less a remake of The Exorcist. William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist 3 is the only one that felt original to me. So this is dumb. Just go watch the original. There's no point in watching a remake. Like, what are you possibly going to do to improve it? CGI, a CGI crucifix stabbing herself? 
CGI uh, pea, pea vomit, uh, pea soup vomit. I, yeah. What, what's going to improve it? Is, is there any way that this studio is going to be aware enough of what they need to do in order to put enough uh, of a budget into the practical effects? Is there any way they're going to uh, have the wherewithal to do that? Probably not, but if this is going to be successful, they better spend a fuck ton of money on practical effects, on makeup, on making it as realistic as possible. Because if you want to live up to that, because I guarantee you what the studio is not taking into consideration is The Exorcist has such a big reputation. And these days, Rotten Tomato scores, whether or not people want to admit it or not, do influence a film's score. A film's box office, actually, it's not the score, obviously, but it influences a film's box office. If this is a bad movie and it gets leaked to Rotten Tomatoes, which it will, probably like a week of he ahead of time, I guarantee you, nobody's gonna go to want to go see it. They're going to lose profits. So their only way to guarantee a good, uh, a good, the only guarantee to make their money back is to try to go all out and actually make it quality. If they're gonna keep, if they're gonna get asses and seats and yeah. keep it there. That is the only way. There's no marketing gimmicks or marketing schemes that is gonna make this movie successful. They actually have to make it good and trust on the word of mouth of people to say, hey, they actually did the Exorcist remake and they did it right. That's what this movie needs to be successful because I'm telling you if that negative Rotten Tomato score comes out a week before, it is going to bomb. There's no way. Yeah. So much for all the reboot news, we now have for you an interview with Mitch McCloud, an indie horror filmmaker who made, get this audience, an original horror movie. It's called Silhouette. Hey. Yay, an original <laughs> horror movie. It's called Silhouette. <laughs> and it is currently streaming on Amazon Prime in the US. Check it out. Horror show exclusive. All right, Horror Hounds, we'd like to welcome to the show the writer-director of the slow burn horror drama that's available now on Amazon Prime, Silhouette. This is Mitch McLeod. What's up, Mitch? Hello. How's it going? Thanks for having me. How's your lockdown situation going, Mitch? Oh, it's been productive. Uh, you know, we got to release Silhouette at the right time. Um, so, you know, people need content to watch. That's been cool. And it's just uh, kind of led to an opportunity to keep the creativity going um, more frequently. So, yeah, it's been pretty nice. Mm -hmm. And I, I noticed you've been hustling, pushing it out there in the groups and everything, and and really putting the footwork in on it. Yeah, marketing is key, and it's uh, it's been successful so far. Um, it, when we uh, we actually, upon releasing pretty shortly after, my distributor actually uh, contacted me because she wanted me to verify, or I guess uh, one of the physical places that will be doing a DVD release later wanted to verify that some of the ratings and reviews um, were legitimate and not just from friends and family or things like that because mm -hmm. it had been, you know, people just came to go and leave the reviews. But yeah, it's because the constant marketing, posting in all the groups, they, they love it. Cool. So to get started, um, were you into horror movies from a young age? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I saw, I can't remember like the first one I really paid attention to. I remember coming into uh, seeing my, on to my mom, I think, watching the uh, original Nightmare on Elm Street, and it was the scene where he's extending his arms toward the walls, and uh, I was like, what the hell is this? And uh, <laughs> I was very fascinated by it, but um, 
yeah, Scream and Halloween. I remember just developing a love for those at a really early age and then just eating up the horror after that. And, of course, Goosebumps, you know, things like that. Uh, those books and that TV show. Uh, mm-hmm. So what first inspired you to become a writer and director? Um, well, as for the writing, um, again, I think, uh, I think I saw Scream when it came out on uh, to... Um, you know, VHS, um, back in the early nineties. And, uh, I think between that and again, like watching the Goosebumps series and reading those books, I was, you know, really always interested in telling those stories. Uh, I never really thought much about being a director though. It wasn't until I wound up kind of helping out on the technical aspect of a theater production I did in high school. Uh, that I kind of started taking a little bit of interest in directing and then watching some films by David Lynch and Darren Aronofsky and watching the, uh, you know, behind the scenes footage of of those films was uh, really alluring. I had, you know, shot stuff on little VHS recorders before, things I'd written, things I wanted to act in, but the acting and writing was my biggest thing. Uh, I I really didn't have any desire to direct. I just kind of did it because no one else was going to do it. And, um, yeah, yeah. Then I just, again, I saw those videos and I watched these directors working and telling their stories the way that they wanted to tell them. And it just kind of clicked, made sense for me. And I started pursuing it right then and there. Okay. So where did you get the idea for Silhouette? How did the script for this come about? Um, well, so I, I guess I, I haven't quite figured out what kind of storyteller I am yet, if I belong to a specific genre or not. I had my, the first thing I ever tried to shoot was something that was a little horror based, but was more dramatic uh, and more of a thriller than anything else. But um, I, to anyone who hasn't seen the film, I don't really want to spoil anything that happens in there who might be watching this. But uh, for some reason, I just had this, I don't know, I don't remember if it was a dream or if it was just a thought that occurred to me while I was out, but some way or another, this image uh, crept into my head of a man lying down and suddenly there's just this almost volcanic eruption of blood. And I kind of wanted to figure out what happened to him uh, because the way I'd seen it, like no one had done anything to him. We didn't watch an attack happen. We didn't see anything. It was just the blood was suddenly there. And I just really wanted to figure out how that happened, why that happened, who he was, and what led up to that situation. And um, I was uh, working on uh, a drama already that kind of told this story of a, of a mother and a father losing their child and, you know, how does a person cope with that? And when I was doing that, I just, I went on a horror kick and started, you know, watching things like Insidious and The Conjuring and, you know, those typical haunted house movies, not to get inspiration. It was just something I felt like doing at the time. And I just kind of decided right there that, you know, telling a story about losing a child isn't anything new. Um, and, you know, telling a haunted house story isn't anything new, but I just, that it might be interesting to combine those two things. Um, I think that, that I haven't decided if I horror or drama more as a storyteller and 
with this, it's just kind of along the lines of, well, I don't have to choose. I can uh, tell a dramatic story that takes place in a horror world or vice versa, horror story that takes place in a dramatic world. And that's just kind of where it started. Well, one thing I noticed about this film, it has two really strong leads. So could you tell us about the casting process of casting April Hartman and Tom Zembrod? What is it, it, was it an extensive process to find just the right actors? Because they, they fit so well. Um, so, no, so I, had, uh, I didn't know April when I first started writing uh, the script. I didn't know her very well anyway. I had uh, done a film uh, with her that I actually acted in. And I remember watching it like a year or two later and not really being into that film. Um, but she was in it and she was the lead and she was a real standout in the film uh, where she was just really, really delivering. And I was really impressed by her. And then that was kind of it. And years, years later when I started, um, you know, working on the scripts and I started thinking about the characters and the faces on those characters, she just always stood out. She always came to mind. She was always someone that uh, I envisioned. And then I started taking an acting class, uh, mostly just to better myself as a director and improve my ability to work with actors. And she was in that class. And so I got to watch her work on a weekly basis. And then it just came to it where I, got through maybe a two or three drafts of the scripts and uh i said hey i, I have this thing that i'm doing and i would kind of like you to be a part of it uh if you're interested can you read this script and she said yes and she came on and did it um i don't like the auditioning process unless you're just really having a, a difficult time you know, finding a particular role. You don't know anybody who could do it. Outside of that, I really don't like to audition. I really like to trust the instincts and, you know, know the people already that are going to be involved. So and it was kind of... No, go, go on. Go on. Go on. Oh, well, I was just going to say, it's just, uh, it was kind of the same thing with Tom Zimbrod. Uh, you know, I didn't actually know him personally either. And uh, I had seen him in, in a few films and he was always playing this, you know, over the top Johnny Depp kind of like wilder than, uh, than life characters. And so the style that I had gotten to know him for actually really suit this role at all. But um, I met him and I had seen him in another movie uh, where he toned it down and played a little more grounded. I mean, he was still playing a, a lunatic serial killer so not completely a normal guy but it was the most grounded i'd seen him do so far and i actually just met with him one night at his uh, home and we just had a conversation about the film and we had a conversation about the role and um i hadn't fully decided yet um that i that i wanted to cast him but we wound up going downstairs and uh we were talking a little bit more and he told me this story and um, there was just something in his eyes when he was telling me the story. And I uh, am a complete believer that anything you need to know about a person, you can learn by really analyzing their eyes. And um, I just felt that he was right. I, I felt like I saw that character coming out through those eyes. And so I just asked him there on the spot if he wanted to do it. 
It's a good process. So, uh, what what were um, some of the challenges that you had into securing funding for this movie? Was it hard to get uh, financiers for this? Um, yes and no, I, I suppose. Um, you know, because before this, I had um, made a feature film that I did for about two thousand um, dollars with a very limited cast and very limited crew, and um, I did a short film uh, called Birthday Girl and. Uh, Birthday Girl was the one that I guess got people to really start paying attention. Like Arc, you know, had an okay festival run and it had some, you know, good responses. But when Birthday Girl came out that people really just got interested and started paying attention. And uh, I met some people who were interested and um, in talking about the project. But, you know, a lot of them didn't know really which direction to go or you know what kind of thing this was going to be because you know there's supposed to be a horror film but there's just such a big dramatic element that you know some people just weren't sure how we were going to do it how we were going to market it or, or whatever but um, I did eventually find somebody um, who had seen the girl and um, originally that person was just going to be someone who tried to help find and secure the finances um, but actually wound up putting up some of the money. Um, um, and then uh, what we needed outside of that, we did a crowdfunding for. And we had a relatively successful crowdfund uh, on that. I think, uh, I think we had like a $10,000 goal, something like that, and a $12,000 goal, and wound up raising five of it. And so that definitely went a long way towards making the film. Of course, you know, when you make a film for that low of a budget, you're definitely relying on an amazing crew to do you some solid favors, cast and crew. Definitely, definitely. Okay, so uh, I don't want to give anything away about the movie, so I'm just going to call it an entity. So how did you approach the design of the entity? It, it, is, it, is what we see on the screen close to the vision that you had when you wrote the script? Um... So originally, when I was writing the script, um, obviously, obviously, if you've seen the film, you know that there's still a lot left to the imagination, and there's a lot that's open to interpretation, um, where the viewer can sit there. And you know, I think that the beautiful thing about the film, and so many of the films that I love, is that you know. 10 different people can have 10 different reactions and, you know, 10 different ideas of what happened. And I don't think that any one of them are necessarily right or wrong. Uh, it was just kind of designed to be that way, but it was even more so designed to be that way. And, um, the beginning of, uh, the writing process, uh, I wrote the script and, um, there wasn't even a ghost or we didn't see a, a specter, or whatever you want to call it, um, we didn't see it. Uh, we implied that one was there, and we implied that we that you know the Amanda character was seeing one, and you know we saw some actions that were occurring, you know the doors opening, sheets being uh, pulled off of the character, but we never actually saw anything. And then um, uh, it was actually two people, a friend of mine and uh, my wife, who. Uh, plays Don in the film, um, we were just, we need something more. Um, if you want to do a, a horror film, 
that's equal parts drama, then you have to give something to the horror fans. Um, you know, the people who are going to watch a movie like this and want to see um, a specter, want to see a ghost or a monster or something of some kind. And so I just sat back and, um, you know, really reevaluated everything. And uh, yeah, and then it, it made perfect sense um, that this thing would be here. And um, just the way to do it just came so quickly. And yeah, I, I would say that um, from script to screen, uh, that's pretty closely um, how that, that figure was always imagined. I uh, had a really good concept artist, you know, that we sat down, did some sketches, and uh, my uh, special effects makeup guy, Joshua Fred, he's just uh, phenomenal at what he does. So it was really, really easy to just have that translate over because I had some amazing people helping me with it. So one of the things I noticed was uh, your cinematographer, and I hope I'm saying his name right, Mark Rouse. Or am I saying it right? Mm-hmm. He also served no, that's as... that's the way. That's the one. All right, perfect. He also served as the editor for the film. Uh, did you always intend to have him do both the mm -hmm. cinematography and the editing? Uh, so Mark Rouse has been a blessing. Um, and... and I think in a lot of ways, uh, without him, uh, these things want to get done. Uh, and this one, we actually, given the loose nature of scheduling process and, you know, certain people having certain gigs and jobs and, you know, low budget payments on this film, um, I think Mar it would be like Mark Rouse would be there for, we would shoot three days a week, um, you know, Saturdays, Sundays, and Mondays. And, you know, this is a man who, you know, works a job on Mondays. So um, I think that the first three out of five weeks of shooting, we shot three days a week. And then um, maybe it was, I don't know. Uh, we shot three days out of the week for the first uh, little bit. And so he would come on on Saturdays and Sundays. And then um, he would kind of pass over the responsibilities to our gaffer Christopher Vaughn on the days that he couldn't be there mm. and they would kind of communicate um, you know back and forth send images and you know how I was looking and but uh, yeah Mark is the person that I met when I was doing my uh, other feature film the one they did for 2000 and um, yeah he's just been a blessing uh, up using another cinematographer on that feature film and uh, again, that film was the same deal where we only got to shoot every so often. So that cinematographer had to go out of town for a little bit. And so I, I brought Mark in. Mark offered himself up. And um, I just really loved the footage that he was capturing um, on that film. And so I brought him out to be my cinematographer on everything since. And, yeah, he's just kind of a jack-of-all-trades. He does it all um, on the films I've done since then, he, that's basically been what he's done. He shoots it, he edits it, he does the sound, he does the color. Uh, he's kind of a, a one-man post-production team, and he's been very beneficial to the whole process. Well, I noticed those, uh, those lot of grays, like uh, kind of washed out colors in the color correction, kind of, kind of similar to The Witch. Did you do this to add to the somber tone of the story? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
you know, it was, you know, already on set, um, you know, I was, I know that a lot of people uh, shoot uh, and they'll shoot actually, you know, very bright and um, they'll just, you know, go in there with the idea that in post-production they can basically color correct it to, uh, you know, make it look like whatever they want it to. And that's a very smart way to go about it. It's a very practical way to go about it. Um, and I may even consider it for the next one. But I mean, I'm, most of the time I'm really adamant. Like when we're on set, I, I want to uh, I want to light it and I want it to look in camera pretty close to how it's going to look in the final film. And, uh, you know, that drove a couple people on there crazy because, you know, they're scared about the color correction. But it actually worked out very well. And, yeah, I... I I believe that, you know, I, I wanted to make this film as somber as possible. And, and, you know, I wanted that to come from more than just the writing and the performances. And this is one of those films where I just, I didn't really want to give the audience uh, a lot of reason or room to breathe. And I didn't want to give them anything that they could just kind of move over to that made the experience uh, more pleasant. So yeah, we muted it in a lot of places. Uh, lots of, like you said, washed out grays. And then in some moments, um, there were times where, you know, the, the screen gets pretty dark. Um, so where you can, you know, you know, make out what's going on, but you have to really focus to make out what's going on. And um, I don't know if some people think that's a error in the production process or post-production process, but um, you know, that's the, definitely an intentional thing because the goal is to you know make you stop doing whatever you're doing that's distracting you while you're watching a film because that's the world we live in today and just really have to focus on this moment so that that impact really gets driven in in those particular scenes well you just said that you like to shoot your films as close as possible on set to what it's going to look like when it's done mm -hmm. um there's a sequence in your film that's bathed in mostly reds did you achieve that on set or was that in post-production and if you did uh, it on set how did you do get all that red ultra red lighting everywhere um so yeah yeah we we did it on set for the most part i mean there were um you know obviously in post-production and you know the color correction process we to you know make it pop a little bit more but uh yeah we just uh we had our lights and we had our gels and we just flooded the area um, as widely as possible as we could. Um, it actually became like, you know, a whole process because um, it just was a thing like, you know, obviously I wish that we'd had the budget and the amount of equipment to just have everything staged everywhere, but that actually wound up being one of the longest sequences uh, that we shot because, um, you know, it was trial and error. So where we wound up, I think, doing that sequence for two days um, because that was another big fear um, is that, you know, most of the time when people did something like that, the red looks uh, very washed out and it's very distracting and it isn't flattering to look at. But um, no, I was pretty insistent on I'm, I'm a pretty stubborn man and so uh you know that was kind of my rule with my my gaffer chris vaughn you know when it came to the lights i know that we had a, 
a limited light source, but I basically had a rule with him on the set where um, oftentimes I'd ask for something and he'd say, well, I can't do that. And I would say, well, yes, you can. And if I told him, yes, you can, um, a certain amount of times, and he told me, no, I can't, a certain amount of times, then eventually I would, I believe him. I think I made a three-time rule. If Chris told me three times that he can't make something happen, then I'm going to believe him. But nine times <laughs> okay. out of ten, he could. And uh, so, yeah, it was like a big trial and error process, uh, you know, making sure that that red wasn't blown out all the time and uh yeah it was a real it was a pain but you know i love the way it turned out so definitely worth it well <clears throat> i really liked how the the story details are slowly revealed throughout the film you get a little hint of what's going on at the beginning and then little hints of what happened in the past throughout and then you find out everything at the end was all this the way it was in the script or did some of this develop in the editing um I think that for the most part, it definitely was in the script. Um, but there are um, certain things that happen in post-production um, or while shooting something that, you know, we like to call uh, happy accidents. Um, you know, something that really enhances the film and makes you look really smart uh, for doing it, even though it may have had nothing to do with you. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, for example, just, I, I believe in visual storytelling. I believe that you should have visual cues, um, in a present, in a film that, you know, if somebody's paying close attention and they can really get a sense of, you know, what's happening in the story or even where the story is going to go. And again, you know, we have moments like that in the film that are just storytelling told visually. But I was actually, um, I, I saw some of the film the other day, and um, it's just, there was a scene, it's the scene early on in the film, it's where they first arrive at the house, and uh, Tom Zimbrod's character, Jack, he's unloading the photographs. And um, in the wide shot, uh, we're looking at a photograph um, of him and uh, April's character, Amanda, and while we're looking at him in the shot, we're seeing the photo in the background, like everything is perfectly clear and everything is perfectly focused. And then, um, and then we cut to the next shot where he sees the photo of himself and his wife and his daughter, mm -hmm. uh, which I don't think is a spoiler to, you know, say that she is, she's died. That's the big plot of the film. But, um, once he sees that, it kind of pulls them back into this reality of how far away and separated that version of life has become from this version of life. And when we cut to the, the next shot of his face, a close-up of him having that realization, we see that photo again, and instead of being perfectly clear uh, like it was before, it's completely out of focus. And um, that's something that I would like to take credit for 100%, but it's just something that I was watching the other night, I thought... That was an amazing accident. I'm so <laughs> glad we got that. Yeah. So you had some pretty good locations in this movie. Uh, where did uh, you find, uh, how did you secure the house and the bar? The bar where Jack um, goes to. So the house, uh, that was actually the hardest thing to find. Uh, I, I looked at some locations and none of them seemed to really work out for what I had in mind. 
um, at all. And even the house that we wound up getting had its limitations uh, to where I had to, um, you know, modify the script just a little bit to fit the house. And then, um, of course, the, the scene where she um, gets dragged into the closet, we had to actually shoot that at a completely different house uh, because the, the house that we shot and I, there was no way, no, um, no doors that were directly across from each other, anything that we could pull that scene off. So I really have to work to do that. But um, no, a, a friend of mine, uh, his aunt and uncle had this place um, that was maybe an hour outside of Dallas proper where I live. And I'd been there before, um, for you know various purposes various reasons and I just couldn't find anything and I didn't want to you know really put him out uh, or you know directly ask him but you know it, it wound up being a thing where I couldn't find a house and I knew that his aunt and uncle had this house so I kind of reached out to him and said hey I'm looking for a house like this like you you know of anything and he said yeah sure these people and we went out there and they're really great and um yeah we told them what we needed to do they allowed us in and it served as a really awesome location and then um the bar was actually just out in my uh hometown a little country town called uh nevada um and i i knew the owner uh i had known her since i was a child i grew up around that area and uh, yeah, I just uh, wound up asking her if we could use it, and she said yes. And it was kind of the perfect place because we were already wanting to. Uh, I already had in mind that you know that visual lighting style, uh, that kind of refin style lighting that we had in the bar, and um, it just so happened that we um, they had this light uh, hanging above the dance floor area, or I guess the side of it. And it would just keep on, you know, changing these colors, but to all the neon colors we were already using and nothing else. So it just kind of worked out. And again, a very happy accident. But um, yeah, we were only allowed to be in the bar for so long because it was going to open. And uh, yeah, it was real fun because we were, we ran over time that day. We had so much to do. And um, it's basically got to the point of doing the dance scene where all these people started just kind of crowding into the bar. Um, and you know watching us make this movie uh which was equally annoying and fun because you know people are kind of getting in the way but it's also exciting you know to have people excited about what you're doing i know that if i'd been there as a kid and i saw these people making this movie i'd be doing the same thing so it was fun so you, you mentioned the scene where uh, amanda gets dragged away just before that there's a particularly creepy part where the the specter or whatever you call it it, it seems to be laughing at her for being scared. What were your thoughts in that scene? Um, I don't think, um, I think that that's, that's a tough question to answer without spoiling. Um, yeah. <laughs> but um, I don't think it was a specter necessarily that was um, laughing at her. I, I think that, again, it was... Um, because you have the specter, of course, and then you have the daughter, um, who are two, you know, separate individuals, two separate beings. And I think that, you know, the daughter, whether you want to interpret it as 
she was there or rather you just want to in, interpret it as a memory. Um, it, I think it was definitely more her daughter than the specter. And then of course, looking back that direction is when you see this thing uh, being there. But yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to give too much away there. Uh, you know, <laughs> deny someone else their own interpretation. Yeah. So, um, you got this movie, did you get this movie on the festival circuit? We did, we did. Um, we started off in Oklahoma with Bare Bones, uh, which was a festival I was very excited to do ever since I had started, you know, kind of trying to be a part of this indie scene, this indie world. I had just heard all these things about Bare Bones and how fun it is and blah, 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 blah. And you know, we went and did that. We had a good time. We won a few awards. And then, um, yeah, we uh, just kind of took off from there. I don't remember exactly how many festivals we did. I know it was several. And um, yeah, I think the, um, the last one that we did, was it the last one that we did? Maybe the last one we did was um, Freak Show, our horror film festival out in Orlando. And um, I was really excited about that one because, um, I mean, A, a horror festival, um, you know, that's just going to be a blast if you're a horror fan. Um, but, you know, I had seen photos and I had seen endorsements of that festival. And, uh, you know, Robert England was uh, some, is somebody who frequents that festival and, you know, has wonderful things to say about it. And, you know, that was awesome to me. I was really hoping that Robert England would be there. Unfortunately, he was not this time around. But... Uh, yeah, we had a good time, saw some good horror films, um, won some more awards. And um, yeah, there's um, the horror movie awards. We've mostly finished our uh, our cycle for the festival run being in distribution now. Um, but uh, yeah, we did wind up. There's a, a person that I follow and you know, I have a lot of respect for him and what he's doing. And he's kind of uh, trying to get a thing going right now. He's got the horror movie awards that are happening. Uh, at the end of this year and uh you know i wanted to show him some support so uh we'll wind up doing that and then that'll be the end of that you know the official end of the festival run okay. so did you get on amazon prime through festivals or did that happen separately um so amazon prime's a weird thing um because you know obviously you know being on any platform is great no matter what um, but you know, the simple, the fact of the matter is that, you know, anybody can put their film on Amazon prime. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I think some people just don't know that, but, um, you know, literally you could probably, uh, edit this into something right now and put it on Amazon prime if you wanted to. Um, but, uh, yeah, we actually got on there through our distributor. Um, and of course, you know, when you go on Amazon prime by yourself, that's kind of a self distributor, then, um, I, I don't know exactly how all that works, but I know that you take in less of a percentage if you self-distribute than, you know, when you go through an actual distributor, things like that. Um, so we have the film on Amazon Prime through ITN Distribution, and through ITN Distribution, we also have it on Roku and Tubi.com, I think is the site that has all the horror movies on there. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah. So they, they put it up there, but the uh, 
that's great. That's fun. It's exciting. It's, uh, you know, gotten people to watch the film, obviously. And, um, you know, the, the reviews, the ratings are, are so weird. It's like 50-50. People like either seem to just really love it or they just really don't. And then there's like this very, very small limited in between. But um, yeah, as great as Amazon is and Roku and Tubi and all that, uh, we'll be doing a uh, DVD uh, release, uh, I think at some point in November. Um, and for DVD physical release purposes, the film will be called uh, A Haunting in Texas and no longer silhouettes. But uh, yeah, that's, that's what I look forward to the most is getting into stores and you know having that dvd option there and allowing people the opportunity to have physical copies of it that's that's the fun part yeah um, what prompted you to change the title for uh physical distribution uh that that i have no say in that uh whatsoever okay. when you uh go into distribution they kind of uh take that take that power i guess unless you uh have a very specific contract but I kind of knew going in, like, if it was up to me, uh, we would, you know, keep it as silhouette, um, which is why I'm happy that we uh, got it onto these streaming platforms as well. Because, you know, most people, you know, especially when you're working on, you know, such a low budget scale, you go to distribution and most people don't get to keep the, the title of their movie that they chose or preferred at all. Mm -hmm. um, and so to at least have it out there as silhouette somewhere is great to me. Um, I guess uh, the stores, some of the stores that they were going to uh, were concerned that, you know, silhouettes uh, wouldn't be, a, I guess, a sexy enough title to uh, <laughs> draw people in to just come pick it up blindly. So uh, a haunting in Texas. <laughs> okay, so I... I really like when uh, filmmakers take an otherwise innocent sounding song and make it sound creepy. And that's what you did with yeah. My Only Sunshine. What made you decide on uh, My Only Sunshine? Um, I think because I, uh, when I, when I was making this film, um, it is a downer and I know that I like, I, there's no question about that. I, I told people, um, when I was making this film that I wanted people to walk away from it feeling as like horrified and disgusted as I did when I walked away from uh, Requiem for a Dream the first time. Um, and, you know, as the filmmaker, it's easy to want to uh, go and do that to others um, or and be able to do that to others. But as the filmmaker, I didn't feel like I should be immune to that. And, um, yeah, You Are My Sunshine is, uh, you know, a song that, you know, my mom used to sing to me as a child. And, um, you know, so it's always stuck with me. And it's always been kind of a, a warming song for me. It definitely gives that warm sensation. And uh, now because of myself, uh, it's somewhat tainted forever. So yeah. I, I felt like I was going to punish everyone then I should punish myself too um <laughs> there was a a big a big toss-up um because there was a big part of me um that wanted to uh use the Jesus Loves Me uh, as the song that uh that was really kind of tearing at me to uh want to use and honestly uh it had already been decided and already been shot um to use it as You Are My Sunshine uh, but there is a wonderful shot in the film 
uh, where uh, I think it's after she gets dragged into the closet is when you see it like really up close for the first time. You can see it before that, but it's the first time you see it really prominently. But it is the um, the plaque with the Jesus Loves Me lyrics uh, mm. written on it. And if I would have shot that first uh, before shooting the You Are My Sunshine bit, then I definitely would have changed it up because um, it was almost just too perfect. But alas, here we are. Still happy with <laughs> You Are My Sunshine. I think it works very well. But uh, yeah. On the bright side, you could always use the other one. Jesus loves me on a future project if you ever want to do something in this exactly again. Exactly. How did you achieve the uh, the face in the tree effect? I, I, I couldn't actually tell if that was uh, CG or if it was practical. Which which scene are you looking at? The face in a tree. Face in the tree. Maybe oh, I interpret- you're talking about the opening, sh- uh, the opening with the uh, yeah. title card silhouette. Oh, yeah. yeah, that that was just uh, another fortunate spot. Uh, we, uh, I, I knew that I, I knew that shot from the get go. Um, that you know, when I first started writing, that's actually one of the first ideas I had uh, as a shot. Um, was that I wanted to cut away from this murder um that you don't see happen on screen you just hear it and um then the next shot would be um fading in to the back side of this tree it's a large tree and then you cut to the other side and you see the end result of the murder with the girl um and then we actually got really lucky in two ways on that again happy accidents um when we were on the set of uh when we were on the set with the girl where the murder took place that we later had ba- oh i guess i shouldn't say that because that's a spoiler but when we were at the home of the girl um who, who was murdered in the opening five minutes of the film um again i already knew that tree shot in the woods was going to happen um but what I didn't know is outside of her bedroom, when we got there, um, outside of the character's bedroom, the owner of the house had this big um, framed painting of this tree. Um, and so I went to you know, my cinematographer, uh, Mark, and I, and I said, you know, hey, um, we have to get this. Like, we have to get this dolly out, the slider, whatever we wind up using. And like, you have to, you have to put this camera on this tree and, and pull back. Cause it's going to look really cool when you're pulling back on this tree. And the next shot is pushing in on an actual tree, uh, from this cross dissolve. And it did, it looked beautiful. And then, um, you know, we shot, uh, the tree scene. I want to say, um, in that same town, uh, which was Anna, Texas. And, uh, we just were scouting and I found this big, beautiful, amazing tree. I think it was the biggest tree that was there. And I said, yeah, we have to shoot this here. And then um, when we uh, got to the other side to um, you know, shoot her face or you know, the result of her face, uh, we just, again, the tree that I picked just happened to be surrounded by this uh, foliage that was around it. And, and uh, we just 
put the camera right there in the center as close as we could get without, you know, dismantling it or anything like that. And then just pulled back and it turned out to be this, uh, this beautiful thing. So again, yeah, it looks, happy looks really cool. Yeah. Thank you. We didn't dress it. It just happened to be. So we're very thankful. Cool. So, as a writer director, um, which process do you, uh, do you enjoy more? Do you enjoy writing or coming up with the story or do you enjoy executing it more? Um, I don't like writing. Okay. Um, I don't like writing. I mean, I do it and I guess the older I get, uh, the more I do enjoy that process. Um, I do like conceptualizing. I, I do like coming up with a story and I do like creating scenes. Um, but I would definitely prefer not to write. I, I would definitely prefer um, having a, a writer that I, that I knew I could trust and just giving that writer uh, the ideas that I have and saying, here you go, do this. Um, but I, I don't know uh, very many writers that I would, that I would trust uh, to do something like that. So I, uh, writing for me is a reluctance. It's a necessity, something I don't really want to do, but uh, I have to. You, you mentioned that you haven't really thought about uh concentrating on one certain genre, but do you have any more horror stories in the canon that you might want to do later? Um, yeah, so I, I just, horror is such a weird term, you know, because it can mean so many things. Um, and I, I think that almost all the stories that I have in mind that I want to tell right now may not be fall directly into the category of horror, but they definitely deal with horrific things and horrific situations um, that watching it could only be described as horror. Um, and there's two, uh, two projects I'm really focusing on right now. Uh, one that's uh, written and I'm uh, working on um, hopefully moving into pre-production soon and uh, hopefully moving into production um, by the end of January next year. Um, that would be, I think, kind of a sister film to, um, to Silhouette, uh, whereas it's definitely a, a horror drama. And I would even say that it's more drama focused than anything else, but the the horror moments that do occur are so horrific that I think that it would be a disservice not to call it a horror film as well. Um, and that's something I've been working on for a little over a year now, just like finalizing that script and, and putting it together. And then another one uh, just happened more recently. And, you know, within a week's time, I sat down and I conceptualized an entire story and now just have to finish the writing process on it, but it's a Western. And uh, it's also um, something that uh, I think could probably be classified more as a thriller, if you will. But again, just some of the scenes that, that happen uh, to lead up to the events that unfold throughout the film, I, I just think uh, just the way they are and, and some of their brutalities and 
uh, you know, how horrific they are in their nature. I just, I, I don't see how you couldn't call it a horror film. So I guess there's a little horror element to just about anything that I do. Um, I would love to tell a straightforward drama, but uh, I don't know. I guess uh, some of the ideas and some of the ways I choose to do some things might not lend myself to, might not lend itself to be able to do that. I noticed that since you like mixing um, drama with more horror elements, that seems to be like a big thing right now with what they call elevated horror. Um, did any of those films influence your movie? And if not, uh, what were what would you say are some of the influences on your film? Yeah, elevated horror is um, something that I'm very excited about because, um, you know, I kind of stumbled into the idea uh, to the idea of these films before uh, that that really became a big thing you know um like uh we got i i love reading the uh the bad user reviews as much as i love reading the good user reviews and uh we actually got a new one yesterday where someone called it a, a blatant hereditary uh ripoff or something like that a blatant hereditary wannabe or something like that and my immediate thought was, well, we shot this before Hereditary ever came out. Um, so there's <laughs> that. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I just kind of lucked into that. Or, or I got lucky that I had a style or a, a vision and that this modern world, you know, kind of landed on that mark right when I did. But um, I guess influences moving forward would be... Um, things like uh, Hereditary, Midsummer, uh, The Witch is a film that, you know, hasn't left me since I, you know, first sat down to watch it. But um, even with The Witch, uh, which was, you know, late 2015, early 2016, something like that, uh, I had already written, you know, a couple of drafts of, of Silhouette before that even was released. Um, David Lynch has been a big inspiration to me. Uh, he's the, I think the first one who really lit that fire under me as far as the interest in filmmaking was concerned, watching his films and, you know, never having seen anything like it before and realizing that there was this entire, uh, world, of uh, films that I had never even considered, uh, that I wasn't aware of because, you know, I watched horror movies and then I just watched stupid romantic comedies, the things that were available to me that, you know, my mom or, you know, my family knew about. And I had no idea that there was this other world out there consisting of uh, films that, you know, frankly, kind of matched the ideas that I'd been having for a long time. I thought it was just crazy. But then, you know, discovering these things. So he's been a big influence on me. Um, he kind of woke me up and, you know, showed me that world that exists with these, uh, you know, diverse eclectic films and um darren aronofsky was the, the same situation right there again when i saw requiem for a dream uh, i think my life changed um completely because again i was seeing this style that i had never seen before i was hearing this music used in a way that i'd never experienced before and you know just watching this dark and grueling and disgusting you know tell but yet it somehow manages to be a, a beautiful thing uh, at the same time, just um, it really blew me away. And of course, you know, these things don't really exist in, uh, in that world. horror world. Yeah. But um, 
the idea, although, I mean, I, I wouldn't argue with anybody who wanted to call Requiem for a dream a horror film. But, um, you know, again, it's just uh, taking something terrible and never losing sight of the fact that it is terrible, but also being able to make it beautiful in some way um, where you still walk away profoundly touched or moved in some way. Um, that, that, to me, is my biggest influence. And, again, it just seems like I kind of found my footing in that world right when the so-called elevated horror movement um, started up. So you cite uh, David Lynch as an influence. Could you ever picture yourself taking a dive into like more, um, I guess, surrealism or avant-garde filmmaking? Um, avant-garde, maybe not so much. Um, I think that uh, I do have a style that lends itself to a little bit of surrealism. Um, and I think that some of that, you know, can be detected in silhouettes. And then uh, more specifically, if you go back and watch the short film Birthday Girl, that was kind of me just, you know, really playing around with that element. And I don't want to see myself um, saying that I can't see myself going down that road, nor do I want to see uh say that I can because honestly I just really don't know um you know there's a there's a part of me who um there's there's the side of me that exists um that's really in touch with certain things and I think a lot of a lot of the time my ideas um go to uh I guess they call it Lynchian uh, level like inside of my head they do and I think that's why you know I've always um, loved him so much and appreciated him more than any other filmmakers because um, I feel like we have a similar thought process in a lot of ways um, but then outside of that um, I'm also cursed with um, a logical side and you know, I, I still do like to uh, to keep things mysterious, and I, I do like to keep the surrealism there, and I don't like to spoon-feed. I like to keep things uh, going in a way where, you know, an audience member might have to think in order to put something together. But um, even still, even going that style, there's this logical side of my brain that, you know, I at least have to have a logic to it. I at least have to make it appear... Uh, like something that could be happening that is happening around us. And I, I think Lynch has probably almost completely discarded um, that logical side of his brain. And it's just, you know, thrown himself full scale into that surrealism and just lets the journey be the experience without having to apply uh, logic to it or you know even have it truly mean anything not to say that's meaningless because I don't think that it is but um, again his his uh, his thing is more of just like the film is the experience uh, and you don't have to necessarily be able to piece everything together or have everything exist in logic uh, to really take away from the experience of that film and I wish I could let that logical side of my brain go but uh, yeah that's it definitely gets in the way, or at least it gets in the way of going as deeply into that level of maybe surrealism that he does or that I would even be interested in doing if I was.
So more blue velvet than Mulholland Drive or Eraserhead then? <laughs> uh, yeah, probably so. <laughs> I, uh, I'd like to compromise and call it maybe a, a Lost Highway. That's that's the one that really gets me going. There you go. It's Mike's favorite. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably well, mine too. Well, Mulholland Drive, but I don't know. I always get caught up. <laughs> Well, uh, Mitch, we'd like to thank you so much for coming on the show. We'd like to encourage all of our listeners to check out Silhouette on Amazon Prime if you haven't. And then check out the DVD, which should be coming out soon. And it's going to be called Haunting in Texas, right? That's right. Yeah, and we'll be making posts and all that as we get closer. So, uh, yeah. Thanks so much, Mitch. All right, thank you, Thanks Mitch. for having me, guys. It was right. fun. Appreciate you. Horror Show Exclusive. All right, we hope you enjoyed that interview with Mitch McLeod. I certainly did. Got a lot of interesting information out of him. And like I said earlier, if you want to check out his film, go to Amazon uh, Amazon Prime if you're in the U.S. And if you have a, a Prime account, which who doesn't these days, let's be honest, it's a free watch. Yeah, Mitch McLeod is, is a cool little movie he's got there, uh, pretty original. And he's a cool guy on top of it. Just talking to him made me want to go back and see the movie again, so... So check out Mitch McLeod and, and watch out for his future projects. Visit us on our social media, um, www.facebook.com slash Pickles Horror Show. Visit us on Instagram at Pickles Horror Show. Yep. And we also just got on Spotify. So if you, if oh, yeah. you want, if you were, because there were some people demanding it before, because a lot of people are switching to strictly listening to podcasts on Spotify. So we, we moved over to there. So now we're on SoundCloud. Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And we plan on uh, expanding more after that. Till next week, folks. Happy horror. Happy horror. <laughs>